0: Today on the Earn More Tutoring podcast, Sarah Ward and I talk about how after spending years providing support to patients with traumatic brain injuries at work, she found herself providing the same support for her family, leading to her specializing in helping individuals with a range of executive function challenges.
1: And so I have a husband who lost his executive function skills and my daughter who has a really significant um, ADHD and dyslexia uh, had really lagging development of executive function skills. So I sort of found myself in this place of where I personally would go to a lot of professional developments, but then they never really told you what to do to remediate it. And that just made me crazy because Um, I knew what executive function was, but I had to find more strategies that were robust to both teach my daughter these skills, as well as to reteach my husband these skills.
0: This is Earn More Tutoring, the ultimate crowdsourced education entrepreneurship show. This week, I speak with Sarah Ward, an internationally recognized expert on executive function. Sarah has presented and consulted with over 1,200 public and private schools in the United States, Canada, and Europe. Yes, I said 1,200. She also provides consultation and expert witness testimony and instruction to graduate level students. Welcome to the show, Sarah.
1: Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here with you today. Uh, really looking forward to the conversation.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, myself as well. So what I'd love to start with is, you know, I know you do so many different things and you you know, you've got such an incredible speaking profile, but I'd love for you just to talk about your different offerings, your business and areas of focus. So we have a broad overview on what your specialties are.
1: You bet. So I would say probably um, a solid about. of my work is definitely doing presentations and professional development on uh, developing executive function, uh, whether it's in the classroom. So I do a lot of professional development for general educators, as well as special educators on what you you can do, uh, just naturally weaving into the classroom to build kids' executive function skills, and then explicit direct instruction intervention. Um, And then I work with a lot of speech and language pathology, psychology groups, um, providing recommendations for treatment. Treatment interventions and writing goals, all of those kinds of things. Um, and then I definitely have a very busy caseload right now, and especially virtually, uh, where I'm providing executive function, coaching, and intervention to students. Um, and I work with um, kids probably about second grade, all the way through certainly high school and college. And then I have a lot of adults on my caseload as well, because certainly there are more and more adults that will say, oh my gosh, you know, this is the one thing that continues to impact me. Uh, in my place of work and really, you know, affects my ability to succeed and to kind of get to the next level. So I work with a lot of um, adults and professionals as well. Um, And then the other portion is certainly doing a lot of writing. Um, My uh, co-director, Kristen, and I have developed the 360 Thinking Executive Function Curriculum. And so we have a number of uh, publications that are sort of at the editing stage. And um, I have a bit of an inner tech geek. So I'm always looking at coding and doing all sorts of different things. We just developed a new Chrome extension to go with our um, iPad app to manage time. So I would say those are my big hats, uh, speaking, teaching, and tech.
0: (laughs) One thing that really jumped out to me when I was looking at your your bio was that you've given over 1,200 speeches, and I'm sure the number's even um, bigger at this point. Um, first off, how do you keep track of all these? Is that on a spreadsheet, or how do you keep track of the number? Do you just notch it somewhere each time? And then second, how did you get into speaking? Because I think that's something that a lot of um, educators would love to do more of, but they just don't even have an idea of how they would make that jump. So I'd love to hear more about that.
1: Um. <laughs> Well the funny part about tracking your your lectures is that um, a lot of times when you have to present and they're offering continuing education or they're offering professional development points, the process of getting approved to be a speaker who's providing um, you know uh, lectures that are for professional development points, you have to turn in so much paperwork and part of the paperwork is you have to prove and show that you've given presentations previously on this and they want to know what that is so every time i give a presentation i just have to keep adding it to my cv so that when i submit for continuing education credits i get approval so <laughs> that's that's how i know that's how i keep track of it that's sort of funny i haven't been asked that before um so how did i get into this um so really there were two things um and most people who know me sort of know my story um, so uh I originally worked at Massachusetts general hospital and I worked on the inpatient and outpatient traumatic brain injury unit. And, um, my specialty was brain injury rehab. And I, and I loved my job. I mean, it was great. You know, I worked with lots of families. Um, and then, uh, my husband was uh, riding his bicycle and he got hit by an 18 wheel neck truck and sustained a very severe brain injury and was in a coma for eight weeks. And we got through coma and we got through home. And so I have a husband who lost his executive function skills and my daughter who has really significant um, ADHD and dyslexia uh, had really lagging development of executive function skills. So I sort of found myself in this place of where I personally would go to a lot of professional developments and they would tell me the features of executive function, but then they never really told you what to do to remediate it. And that just made me crazy because... Um, I knew what executive function was, but I had to find more strategies that were robust to both teach my daughter these skills as well as to reteach my husband these skills. And so um, collectively, that sort of started me down the path of really looking at practical, practical interventions. And uh, I was president of the Mass Brain Injury Association for many, many years and uh, several other kind of brain injury organizations where I would present for those. And then um, I think because I was specializing more and more in executive function with children, more schools were calling me in and doing that. So it was really word of mouth. There was nothing else other than that. Um, But I think that one of the reasons why probably I speak so much is that um, I'm very committed to this, is that I really believe every teacher, every provider absolutely just wants practical strategies. And so I really try to make sure my presentations are, you now maybe 10, 20% of sharing our model of executive function, and then just providing as many practical strategies as possible. Because everybody just wants to know, what can I do? How can I go back to my office tomorrow and try something that will really have an impact and neurologically bring about change and not merely compensate for a child's executive function deficits?
0: So, you know, given that you you started speaking and providing these, these practical strategies for people how did you go from working, I imagine it was like a full-time job with, with the hospital and being in that, how did you make that switch? And when did you decide that was the right time? You know, I think that's a big um, transition point for a lot of educators or, or people in the field that they may be teaching or playing a certain role. And then they're like, wow, I really have a passion and love for this, but it's hard to jump into it. How did you make that leap into kind of doing something different than what you were, what were doing at the time?
1: Um, I really think that it was um, a combination of several things. I think one was um, I really needed certainly more flexibility of time uh, and to sort of be able to, to a certain extent, own my own schedule and and manage those parts of it. Um, But I also felt that I really wanted to specialize more and more in executive function and to really specialize in supporting both students as well as um, adults with, you know, both developmental-based, you know, learning disabilities, as well as executive function-based um, challenges from, say, acquired brain injury and I was really finding that more and more in my position at Mass General Hospital that uh, I was getting a little spread thin. So it was sort of uh, starting to work in so many areas to sort of uh, meet the needs of the patients that were coming in. And so that was really my biggest uh draw was the opportunity to just really specialize and to really work with what I wanted to work with. And um, my co-director, Kristen Jacobson, um, she's really one of the most extraordinary clinicians um, I've ever met. And and I always, I always joke that she's sort of the Steve Jobs of executive function skills. Um, and she was also going into private practice. And so it was sort of this opportunity to really streamline and uh, work with her. And so that, I think that was sort of the second piece that shifted me was it was this opportunity to just really collaborate and develop a program that we knew um would be different and helpful for for many many families and students um and so I was lucky enough to sort of uh have that opportunity to do that and to work with her and I've continued to work with Kristen I mean you know she's the co-author of our 360 thinking program and my gosh we've been working together for 28 years now <laughs> long time <laughs>
0: So well, if she's the Steve Jobs, then you must be. Is it the Steve Wozniak? He's like the 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 brain behind it. I mean, I, they, they both are integral. But it sounds like your partnership has been very fruitful and um, just also so helpful to so many people to be able to provide this expertise on executive functioning, which is so so important. So yeah, that's well, that's wonderful. That you know, it sounds like you identified. You were starting to feel a little spread thin or of course, you know, when I'm, when I'm here, story, I'm thinking how, when you're working in an organization, if you're a competent, skilled person, they're just like throwing everything at you, right? Cause you're the person who's going to get it done, but eventually you have to be like, well, this is really what I want to do. Um, and I'm wondering for myself, but I know other people are going to have this question. You know, I have a tutoring business and a, and a coaching business and I love working with my clients, but at the same time, I want to do things like you're talking about where, you know, I go out and share the the process that we've created and, and I share my expertise. But it's so hard to step away from those people or, you know, in some degree step away from the clients that you've built these incredible relationships with and you've nurtured them through challenging periods and, and helped them. How did you find that balance where you're stepping away from something that you've clearly had a major impact on these people li- people's lives, and I guess still going I'm sure there's always that that balance you know where you're working directly with people, but at the same time you gotta get the message out there and you gotta spread it because that's the goal right is to to change things for for the better for people with e f challenges how do you balance that? how do you decide you know that's a huge question, but yeah how do you how do you balance um letting go of something so you can step into other things. And and I guess what practical strategies would you recommend to, for people who are like struggling to step away from doing direct coaching and want to do more speaking or things like that?
1: So great question. I think there's probably three things. Um, and they all have a little, they intersect, but they have a little bit of a different angle and avenue, if you will. So I think one thing about that is, is that by nature of the students that we work with. The challenges always um, shift. So, you know, when a student comes in when they're referred to in elementary school, things can shift and then they need something different in middle school, and then things shift, and they may need something different in high school and college, beyond, et cetera. So there can be, unfortunately, I think sometimes, especially in our field as speech and language pathologists, um, to have these clients that stay in your caseload for a very, very long time. And I'm not really a quote unquote a fan of that. Um, I think it one thing that is helpful is to really be very clear about what your goal is for the student to independently generalize the strategies that you're teaching. You know, it's not enough to sort of just say, okay, you know, like what do you have for homework tonight? Let's get your homework done tonight. It's that we really want our students to get to the point where they say, oh, okay, I have homework. What is the strategy I use to manage my attention and time to complete that work independently? Oh, I have a writing assignment. What are my strategies that I use to maximize my ability to initiate written expression independently? Oh, I have, you know, homework that I've completed. What are the strategies that I use to guarantee that I remember to kind of submit it and turn it in and, you know, follow up on that? So, I think that one big emphasis is is having uh, extraordinary clarity of what your client's goals are, and to uh, you know try to be working towards that and measuring that they're developing the independence for that. Um, and I think that's I think that that's not easy. I think it's hard because. You know, we end up wearing a counselor hat so often. You know, I mean, our clients can have anxiety and emotional dysregulation and all sorts of things as well. And there are days that you just can't always be strategy driven. You just need to be a support system too. So I think there's a balance with that. But I, I definitely think that one part of that in freeing up your time and making sure that you have time for other things is being clear about what your goals are, um, so that students um, eventually can go from once a week or twice a week down to once a month, and then where you're doing check-ins periodically. And then they call you back when they're in college and say, gosh, I need a booster of those strategies, or how do you tweak it now for this situation? Um, But I think the second is is actually really making excellent use of executive function time strategies to begin with. Um, I really work very hard at blocking my time and being very clear of, what I want to use my time for. So if I've blocked um, you know, an hour of time for writing time or if I've blocked an hour of time for tech development or if I've blocked an hour of time for um, you know, treatment uh, prep, whatever it is, uh, it's not effective to actually put that in your calendar and say, I'm going to write from nine to 10 or I'm going to do tech support, you know, my tech stuff from 10 to 12 because that's just way too open ended and it's the same thing it's it would be equivalent to saying to our students well put on your calendar that you're going to study from 3 to 5 i mean that's just too broad and open ended and it doesn't give you the clarity of the specificity of what it is that you want to accomplish so i think that the second thing that allows me to balance that is if i sit down and i've blocked an hour for tech time it's that okay i know at the end of that hour i need to Record this for that Chrome extension, or I need to do this coding specific to that problem. Um, so I'm, I guess that's this thing. I, I really try to be um, very cognizant of how I spend my time, um, and that's what I you know coach a lot of my students to do as well. Um, and and then I think the third thing is is also just knowing. Um, but we always love to call those time robbers and the goes within the maybes and really be clear of the the things that get tacked on to time that you know are going to gobble up your time that you just can't schedule for. So I have to really be aware of the availability of time, of logging in before lectures, um, allowing ample travel time for things, knowing that when I'm done with students at certain time at the end of the day, that I have to dedicate a portion of time to writing notes and updating the billing and the invoicing. And you just have to be really cognizant about planning for that. Um, and so I think it's, um, I mean, I think those are the intersections is knowing the extras that go with things. You know, you can't just think, oh, I just have patience and then you're done. Yeah, there's a lot of little extra things that go with that and you have to plan for that. Um, being clear about student goals and then have specificity as your superpower when you're blocking time.
0: It feels like one of the biggest parts of executive function functioning is setting clear or smart goals as they say, measurable goals and then like reevaluating the process if you're not reaching them. So so what I'm hearing from you is that in order to, you know, have the best impact on a student but also be able to create your own schedule is that we need to have clear uh, kind of, you know, targets for what we're working towards with a student and their family. And it's really not about, well, I, I'm, I know, you know, personally that the relationship is so important. It's really about the goals, you know, and what are we working towards and who can help with that and how do we work together? And then, you know, everyone can do their own thing as long as you're all working towards the same target. And then, yeah, I love what you're saying about also capturing or planning, all those little things, you know, and, and you used a phrase, I'd love to you for you to share a little bit more about the, the goes and the maybes, or can you tell me more? What what you meant by that?
1: Yeah. So we use a phrase, um, we really teach kids to do something called ACE their time and and ACE is an acronym and we've changed it a bit, um, to really, um, it's, it's morphed over the years, um, in the work that Kristen and I have done. Um, and, Ace Your Time really teaches kids the um, how do you schedule your time. And one of the big things that we talk about, um, you know, the A is what you 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 first have to schedule what kinds of things you have that are at a specific time, appointments, activities, uh, school times, et cetera. Then you have to assign a time for doing homework and things. Um, You have to have chill time where you're going to chill out. I mean, you have to be preparing for that. And then the big one is you have to be aware of what we call the extras. Now, this is the big thing that I find so many students with executive function impairment um, haven't learned and they've never been taught it. So one of the big things that is always amazing to me is we, we say so many times for kids, Oh, you got to use your academic planner. Make sure you use your agenda book. And don't get me wrong. I mean, I love a really great agenda book. But the problem with most agenda books and academic planners is they're actually to-do lists. They're not schedule books. It's a list where you're writing down what homework you need to do that rarely are students actually taught how to schedule daily time. You know, I'm not talking about hourly time because that's different right now. But when you start to really schedule daily time, it never ceases to amaze me. I can show a student, okay, let's see what you have at a specific time today. Great. You have school, and then you have soccer, and you have your tutor. And the kids are like, yeah. And you put that on a calendar, and then you really show them the duration. Okay, well, school is going from 9 to 2. Your soccer is going from 3 to 4. And then your tutor is from 5 to 6. And you're blocking that. And then we began to plan for the extras. And the extras include the goes with and the maybes. So what goes with soccer practice is you got to go into the locker room and change your clothes. And the walk from the locker room out to the soccer field is actually a pretty decent distance at the high school. And it might be 10 minutes or so. So even though soccer practice is at three, you've actually got to get your booty in the locker room at 20 of because there's the extra time associated with that. Same thing, maybe soccer practice is supposed to go until 4.30, but there's what we call the goes withs and the maybes. Now the maybe is coach might give you a pep talk and it goes a little late. Maybe after soccer, me and a couple of guys are gonna go grab a slice of pizza on the way home. Maybe uh, we need to stop and do an equipment pickup afterwards. I mean, those are just the things that, might happen. They're typical. You can kind of anticipate a little bit. Another really great example of an extra is just what we call natural transition. So I have a lot of students who will say, well, I'm going to do my homework when I, uh, you know, hang up from this Zoom call. And I go, no, you're not. (laughs) You're not. Because the fact of the matter is, as soon as you hang up from that call, you have a natural extra time, which is a transition, which is where you go to the bathroom, you pet the dog, you grab yourself something to eat, you quickly scan your phone, And really, that's a 15-minute natural transition where all of a sudden kids realize it really is not an hour of time blocked for homework. At best, it's 45 minutes. Plus, there's a goes with, in order for me to be prepared for my tutor who's coming at 5 o'clock, whatever it is, I actually need 10 minutes to take out my SAT stuff and, again, go to the bathroom and, you know, make sure I've had a snack or whatever it is. And so when we really suddenly put a schedule and we show, okay, there's 20 minutes before soccer, then there's the 20 minutes after soccer, walking back across the field, changing, plus there's the 15 minutes of driving home, then there's hopping in the shower, and then there's the extra time of getting ready for your tutor. Your tutor goes an hour, and then you're probably going to have dinner. Oh, and by the way, your favorite TV show to chill on, or you want to watch the draft tonight, whatever it is. And you show that to a student and say, is this what you thought your day looked like? Every single one of them goes, I had no idea. And and we're not talking about students either because, um, you know, I just worked with an adult this morning and he said to me, he's like, I'm I'm set. He goes, I only have one thing that I need to do today. I have to finish my taxes and I'm, I'm all good. I've got my plan time completely planned for that. I said, okay, let's take a look at what your day looks like, like really visualizing it. And he knew what he said, well, I have you and I have another appointment at one o'clock, and then the rest of the day is taxes. And I said, okay, well, let's take a look. So he's a dad and he had to have his dad hat on, we call it dad hat, um, until 8:30 this morning. My appointment with him is at 10. And so actually, by the time his kids walk out the door at 8:30, there's a good example of the extras. He's not just sitting down to do taxes. It's 15-minute shift of get your cup of coffee, get yourself to your desk, double-check your email for 10 seconds before you hop in, right? Then he saw me from 10 to 11, and then, of course, had um, another medical appointment at 1, which went until 2, and then he has his dad hat from 3 until 7 o'clock. And all of a sudden, he goes, I had no idea this is what my day looked like. He said, in my mind, I had the whole day for taxes, And so, this is the kind of feedback we get a lot. And again, two problems. One, rarely are people taught scheduling, actually, especially at a young age. And two, they think it means record the task, not see the time and be cognizant of the extras and the goes withs and the maybes, (laughs) right? Because maybe you'll go out for pizza. Who knows? Maybe there will be traffic. Uh, rush hour goes with driving into Boston at five o'clock. You have to give yourself an extra half hour window of time. So long winded answer to your question.
0: (laughs) No, no, I'm, I'm enraptured because I'm just thinking about, yeah, it's so, and it, and it's, it's like, it's like, uh, time is this whole nother, uh, reality. It's not just doing things, right? There's, you can write everything on a list, but then there's the whole element of time and you have to, you have to like balance thinking about time and then also what falls in between things and not just focus on tasks because, right, and then you also have to consider the chill time, like you're going to need to relax between certain things if you exert yourself. And that's hard. You know, that's hard for people to do. I know that. I know that for myself. I know that, you know, as as I do, you know, this work with others. Um, And I was just thinking about another guest I had on recently, his name, Andrew Hallam, and he was talking about this, but from a different perspective, which is, Money and in the sense that people don't know all the money they're spending, like so what he recommends to all his clients to do is to write down everything they buy just he he just keeps a journal and he just writes down everything you buy and it just makes you aware like, oh, I spent two dollars on parking, oh, I spent like five dollars on this and it's almost like in the same way like it would benefit people to Write down everything they do. Okay. I grabbed coffee five minutes. You know, I, uh, you know, sat down and, and looked at a magazine or, you know, browsed some Wikipedia article for 10 minutes. Then I started my taxes, you know, for 30 minutes. But it's like people aren't aware of that. And you help them develop almost an awareness of how time is being distributed throughout the day. Now, I've heard with people, and this is like separate from the kind of earn more tutoring hat, but I've heard people with ex- executive function challenges. And I'd love to know your opinion on this. Is that you don't actually change your executive function? You just develop better habits, or like do you develop a better way to um, you know identify your time and how you're spending it? What are your thoughts on that? Do people, do people actually change their internal kind of wiring, or is it just that they develop such highly efficient externalized systems that they're able to track things and and, and kind of manage their lives more effectively?
1: I think the answer is it depends. Um, I think if If they are sort of doing it on their own and they're just trying to compensate and see what works for them and they can put in a lot of those systems, then I think it is an improvement of habits. I also think that if they're working with teachers and educators who are uh, merely working with them to check off the schedule book and um, make sure you turned in your homework and all those things, then I think that that's more habit-driven. Um, however, we know that there are actually a lot of interventions that really do neurologically bring about change. And, you know, that's a big portion of what our intervention is focused on is not really the compensation, but truly the development of those skills. So the thing is, is that when you talk about like organize your backpack and plan your homework and manage those things, all of those are actually the product of the executive system. It's not like the executive skill in and of itself. So to give you a really good example, um, you know, granted you're sitting here and you're interviewing me, but I guarantee you have a movie in your head. And the movie in your head says, okay, as soon as I hang up with Sarah, I've got to just you know, quickly go into the other room and I've got to throw the wash into the dryer because I promised you know, my wife I'd help her out with that. And then I have two critical emails that I've absolutely got to have sent by one o'clock this afternoon. Then I've got that kid coming in at two that I was going to work with and I need to prep some documents for them. And then as soon as that's done and after I see that kid, I was going to hopefully get outside and go for a quick half hour run before I need to manage dinner, whatever it is. And truly, it's a mental movie in your head where you're visualizing yourself moving through time and space. And executive function always begins with nonverbal working memory, that mental imagery. And that mental imagery is also driven by something called situational awareness. Now, situational awareness is your inherent capacity at any one moment in time to be situationally aware of Space, time, objects, and people. In other words, at any one moment in time, we are aware of what space am I in right now? What time is it? What time is the next transition? What pace do I need to keep to make that transition? What objects do I need right now? And what is my role or job right now? Like, in other words, um, are you wearing your dad hat job? Are you wearing your clinician job? Are you wearing your husband hat? You know, like whatever it is, we're constantly aware of what our given role is. When you combine those two skills together, so you combine your situational awareness with mental imagery to run a movie of how you're going to go from the position you're in now to the future space of where you're going, Uh, it's actually a processing skill that has a specific name. It's called mimetic ideational information processing, which is really a huge mouthful. It basically means you mime the idea in your head. And I love that concept because, um, uh, for example, like if you think about what a mime does, a mime simulates an action without the actual object. All day long, if you have proficient executive function skills, you are simulating what you're going to do in the future. And 90% of the time, task planning happens in a different space from where you execute the plan. So when your mom's dropping you off at school and you're walking through the parking lot, If you have good executive skills, you're running the movie through your head. You see, I got to go in. I got to go to my locker. I need to make sure I take out my goggles and my uh, lab report. Because as soon as I get into science class, I know that lab report is due and we're working on the new lab. And this is a really tough teacher. And she takes off points if you don't turn anything in. And you get inside to your locker. And before you're even at your locker, you're already grabbing the lab report because you've pre-imagined it kids with weak executive skills who don't do this, they get out of the car, they walk into science, and the teacher goes, where's your lab? And they go, oh, and they leave the classroom. And while they leave the classroom, they miss the message that this is going to be on the upcoming test, and that isn't. (laughs) And so they're chronically kind of like what we call a bit of a beat behind. Um, You know, another great example, when you're downstairs, and you're eating your breakfast, you think, okay, what am I going to wear today? Well, I could wear, you know, the blue sweater, or I could wear the, you know, the, the white pullover, whatever it is. And you make that decision so that the minute you go up to your closet, you're going right for the blue pullover. Our students with executive challenges, they eat breakfast. Someone has to tell them 10 times, go upstairs to your room. They go up to their room and they sit down and they take out Legos or a book or start looking on Instagram. And someone needs to cue them. Hey, you need to grab that sweatshirt. Hey, you need to get your textbook. They're not always running that movie. So what we have really found is that if you really want to bring about neurologic change, you have to teach students to develop that nonverbal working memory. You have to grow their situational awareness. And neurologically, when you do those two things, then you really do actually see change and not merely just compensation and habit development.
0: Yeah, so yeah, they have to be able to I I love the idea of like a script basically so it's like kind of like previewing in your mind like what comes next and then it probably helps them um identify what steps do they have to take in order to walk into that situation prepared. Um and that's I imagine that's something that, yeah, you, the more you do it, the better you get at it. So it's kind of like a habit, but also probably changes the, the brain chemistry a bit.
1: It's amazing how many kids don't do it though. Like it's shocking if you say to, and, and a really great question is ask kids if they visualize when they read a lot of kids who don't visualize when they read don't have that mental visualization of self. Um, Now that's not exclusive. I have some kids who have extraordinary ability to have imagination from written text. And yet when you say to them, do you have an image of yourself? Like when you think of doing homework tonight, do you see yourself at home? Like, do you see yourself in a certain room? What materials do you see in front of you? They'll be like, no, I I have no imagery of myself whatsoever.
0: That's like, so it's almost like they need a guided process to do that and coaching consistently so they can eventually independently do it.
1: Right. You have to do a lot of that.
0: <laughs> yeah. What I, I, I want to ask about is, you know, after giving so many speeches and kind of, you know, developing, you know, your expertise or, you know, continuing to shape what um, people know about executive function, what advice would you give for someone who is starting to give speeches or is starting to share their knowledge and speak to schools and spread their message um, not only on how to best engage an audience, but also what have you learned about how to make that a, I guess, profitable endeavor. Like, for example, I spoke with Cindy Goldrich, and and she shared that um, for her, she would she would um, ask an organization. She would say like, "Do you have an honorarium or some type of um, you know budget for this?" and then. Leslie also, Joselle also shared, like, sometimes she'll do things for free just because she wants to share with that audience. And she wants that, you know, if it's a nonprofit or something like that, she wants them to have, um, you know, their budget for something else. But what, what advice would you give to someone who's, who wants to, to jump into speaking about their work, but at the same time, they, they want to make sure it's, you know, profitable or in a way that protects their time and energy.
1: Oh my goodness. Um, <laughs> got off guard. I have to really think about that. Um, Uh, I guess, I think one thing is, is that it's really important to focus on the fact that whatever information you're presenting is, um, I think, practical and applicable. Uh, I think there's a lot about distributing knowledge and changing thinking and understanding of how something occurs. And I do think that there's a huge place for that and really important. I mean, certainly I've learned a lot from lectures about that. I'm an information junkie. I mean, no doubt. Um, But at the same time, I think when you're looking at sort of profitability, it's really being able to provide people with tangible tools um, that is practical, that they really feel that they can Take something and learn and try to see measurable change, Um, because I think that, um, you know, this this group of kids that we work with and the teachers that we're supporting. um, Some some kids can be really challenging, whether it's behavior or whether it's that. you know, it makes me crazy. I, I can't stand it when you talk with someone and they say, oh, well, that kid's just not motivated. He doesn't care. You know, I think every kid deeply cares at some level. And I think every kid really oh. wants to do well somehow. And if they're really struggling, there is truly something that's kind of getting in the way of that. And so those sometimes those kids who can seem like they just truly don't care can be so tricky to work with. And so I think that when teachers and parents feel empowered with a tool to try to connect and make measurable change, um, I think that makes for a strong presentation. I guess that's what you know. So that if you're if you're going to shift down this road and decide, I'd love to really present on this and share that. I think there has to be an, a nice balance between um, theory and application um, and practicality. Uh, so I think that's I think that's one thing. Um, and I think that um, I think storytelling is important. I think people really relate well to uh, the, the story. Um, and I don't simply mean telling stories of your experiences of lots of kids, but I think when you can share information in almost like a narrative story-like way where people walk away with understanding the story it's far better than giving them a bullet points of a bunch of facts. Um, My, (laughs) my coworker, Kristen always laughs at me and says that I think in PowerPoint, um, which is probably true. Um, But uh, I really believe in the power of visuals um, because executive function starts with visuals. And when people have that mental imagery, uh, the mental imagery is remembered, the words are forgotten. And so I think putting together presentations that have a strong visual narrative um, are more impactful. Um, And just from the the pure business side of it, um, I I would completely agree. I think there's a balance between um, being paid for your presentations and your time because It is a lot of time to put these things together. I mean, I'm sure you must know, you know, I always laugh that, um, I mean, as many presentations as I do every presentation I make, I change it up. I mean, I do it different every single time, even though on the surface, some parts might seem similar. I'm constantly adding and tweaking and refining and, and defining and you know, a one hour presentation can be 40 hours of PowerPoint presentation prep. Um, You know, an all day lecture can be two weeks worth of prep. I mean, so it's, it's a lot of presentation time. And so making sure that you're paid for your speaking time and your prep time and your travel time and all of those um, it's, it is important. And then I do do a fair amount of pro bono work as well to just sort of offset that a little bit.
0: Another guest was talking about how getting feedback from your community and continuing to revise what you provide, you know, and it sounds like from your speeches, but also from your curriculum and from working with your, your clients, how do you, um, you know, build community and engage your community and then also get feedback from them. So you continue to provide them with what they need. What are your strategies and processes for that?
1: Um, yeah, so I, um, uh, and unfortunately or not, um, social media is not a big focus for me, um, uh, mostly because when I am balancing my time and juggling my time, my time just ends up in other places than kind of invested in the social media piece. Um, but uh, I spend a lot of time uh, to the best of my ability following up with schools um, in terms of. Q and A's and teacher consults. And as well, my coworker, Kristen will go in and do a lot of teacher consults and classroom observations. Um, so for example, one of the things I love is I'll do like an all day presentation or I'll do a two or three hour presentation. And then I always try to schedule an hour or two hour follow-up Q and A's. And typically teachers will send in kind of Q and A's. I'll generally, pardon me, do like a little PowerPoint of, uh, to answer a few of their Q and A's. And then we really open it up broad to Q and A because it's so funny. If you just say, I'm here for Q and A office hours, for some reason, it's hard for people to kind of get going. (laughs) But if you sort of just say, okay, well, you know, here were some of the top questions this week that all of a sudden people are hearing that. And then they're spurred to ask more questions. And um, I really love doing that follow-up because we're all about bringing it right into the classroom. So there's nothing better than when a teacher comes and says, gee, I tried this strategy or I have this upcoming lesson, or here's this assignment. How would you make this assignment more executive function friendly, or how would you make this class lesson uh, more executive function um, efficient so that students can really initiate and complete it within the allocated time frames. And I love, love, love doing that. Um, we also have a program called extreme classroom makeover where we, uh, pre-observe classrooms. And then we go in and lecture and then come back and we kind of roll up our sleeves and we work right there in the classroom. So we're working to kind of redesign everything from uh, where things are sort of placed on the wall to instruction, to observing students and really providing explicit strategies. So um, for me, I think the follow-up is... um, you know, opening yourself up to, quote, those office hours and being available to answer some of the Q&A. And I think that's where uh, not only is it beneficial to your audience, but it's really beneficial to you because you can think you've been so clear in a lecture, oh, this is so obvious, like you're going to go do this. And then people do it and you think, no, 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 it wasn't supposed to be that way. Or they're so confused or they're finding it really difficult to implement something. And that's great feedback for me that says, it's not as easy as we thought. So we need to really streamline that.
0: Yeah. Thank you for for sharing that. Because as soon as you started talking about it, I realized so many people are so confused about social media in the sense that they're like, okay, I'm going to start an Instagram and a Facebook page and then like the business will be there, you know, but what you do, you know, and, and, you know, as I know, and, and I'm sure that I'm correct me if I'm wrong, but the money, you know, the work is with the schools. They're the ones who want to pay to improve their processes and, you know, improve their, you know, their classrooms for their students. So they're willing to invest in that. So you're going straight to the source rather than, you know, spending, uh, you know, all this time on social media and, and you know, it's kind of like uh, if a tree falls in the forest does anyone hear it? Like, you know, what's the point of posting all this stuff if if you're not actually engaging an audience? So that is wonderful to to think about, you know, and it's already making, you know, the gears turn in my head. What, what are the key strategies for engaging new schools? Like I'm, you know, obviously your, your background is so impressive. So I'm sure you just say like, Hey, uh, look at this, you know, and they're like, wow, well, we would love to have Sarah here, but what would you recommend to someone who, you know, is, is a very skilled educator or, you know, has something to bring to the table? How would you recommend they reach out to school and what type of offering do you, you know, it's going to be different for each person, but how do you, you, um, encourage what, what, I guess, practical strategies would you advise for someone who wants to connect with more schools?
1: I think partly it's a little bit of making that connection with specific departments around specific skill areas. So, for example, uh, connecting with like an academic center of okay, here's a really robust approach that's going to make and streamline your hour in academic support, or here's a specific approach that's going to um, streamline study skills when you're working with a group of five or six students or um, whatever it is, I think that if you can work with a small group of educators where they try something and they see the benefit, then it's word of mouth because what happens is, is that group goes to their other You know, academic and says, this is really working for me. And then they want more. Um, And so I think really that's the number one way to sort of make it move along is that you've got to start small where people are experiencing success with something different. And then when they're experiencing that success and they sort of spread that by word of mouth, then people sort of want more. Um, And uh, I think, I think too that um, the, That's probably the greatest challenge is for educators to feel like they're able to meet the need um, with efficiency um, and especially when time is so limited. Um, And so anything that can kind of streamline that helps.
0: Yeah. It's like really tapping into a very specific niche and addressing the pain points there rather than saying like to the whole school, like, does anyone want help with executive functions? Like, no, go to the learning specialist or, you know, and say like, Hey, I've got like this strategy, like we're going to block out the time or whatever it may be. Yeah. Really being targeted.
1: I, I I will just add, you know, because it's fascinating when we do extreme classroom makeover, um, one of the things that we'll do is we'll work with a small cohort of teachers and inevitably, uh, one or two teachers will volunteer their classroom. Of course, the funny part is, it's never really the teacher that needs to volunteer their classroom. <laughs> it's just always there, the teacher who's just that person who is always wanting to be better and better and better. Um, but that's fine because one of the things that we will do is sometimes we'll, as a group, go and do walkthroughs through, say, a third grade classroom, a fifth grade classroom, a sixth grade classroom. And it's amazing how many teachers don't ever go into another teacher's classroom. I know that sounds funny, but they don't. And so sometimes when they suddenly go into another teacher's classroom, they have a little bit of this aha moment of, wow, that's a really, that's working for you. I can see why that would be different or powerful or helpful. And then they're encouraged to try it on their own. And so that is why I find working with small groups of teachers Where then other teachers observe the success and then it kind of, it goes by word of mouth.
0: Yeah. That's an amazing point. I just want to echo that because, you know, it's kind of like, we're not in a classroom right now. We kind of are, but like for me, just talking to people like yourself and other people I've had on this show, just the ideas and just being able to learn about how you approach something. It's incredibly, um, gratifying and also just mind expanding. Um, you know, it's, it's the quickest way to the solution, right. To see how someone else is doing it and have at least a repertoire of ideas that you can try because every kid needs a different approach. And when is the extreme classroom makeover going to be on HTV? Cause I want to watch it. Okay. Like I just can totally see it. It's a show. <laughs> it sounds amazing. I mean, that is like, if that's not a show, why, why is it not a show at this point? Because it's like, it's a win-win, right? Improves classrooms. Like imagine all the kids walking in, just the, the looks on their faces when their classroom is just totally made over. That just sounds incredible. So I love, I love the title.
1: <laughs> well, we we laugh about it, um, it, it but it is really fun. And, and sometimes I should probably even take off the word extreme, but uh, because the the true reality is, is that there's actually a lot of little tiny tweaks that teachers can do. Um, on a daily basis to make their classroom and their instruction extraordinary tools to supporting the development of executive function skills. Um, And I think that that's... um, I think that that's uplifting for teachers Um, because it really, when you meet with, I mean, I work with a lot of teachers and the first thing that teachers will say to me when I'm walking into the school and they've never met me before, I mean, you'll watch and their hands go up and they're like, oh, I teach calculus or I teach AP art or, you know, we elementary schools, we just got a brand new reading curriculum, or I've got to get through all this social studies. I, I do not have time to teach executive function skills. And, you know, you'll hear a lot of teachers be like, organization, time management, that's not my job. I mean, I'm, I'm teaching math, right? You know, it's not really my thing. And so when you can really empower them to know, actually there are so many teeny tiny things that you can do on a daily basis that are going to teach your students those skills. um, They really, they really need to learn those and, and to do that. And, The classroom environment sometimes is just the perfect place to make little teeny tiny changes that have, I should say, an extreme impact. So it makes me realize, chatting with you, maybe we need to change the name. Uh, Maybe it's not so much the makeover, but it's, you know. Tiny changes for an extreme impact. Maybe that's what it is. Yeah,
0: well, I mean, I like the name and it jumps out to me and it, it excites me. <laughs> but yeah, I, it reminds me of um, that book. Uh, I can't remember the name of it right now. Atomic Habits. He talks about one per, oh, okay. 1% changes, right? It's like even just a small shift can revitalize your life, you know, like if you save a dollar every day or whatever it might be, or you know, you you go for a, you know, a walk every day. Like those small 1% changes can have a massive, extraordinary compounding effect over time. Um, I'd love to know what tools help you run your business effectively. Like I heard from another guest about TutorBird and I just brought that on and started using it. And it has, rev- it has given- saved me hours and hours and just made everything so much easier. But I'd love to know like what tools for you help you run your business, help you stay organized, productive, effective?
1: Probably, I mean, I'm definitely a PC girl. So it's that. Uh, naturally, of course, I'm a PowerPoint addict uh, slash ninja. That's my one thing, but... um, from just in terms of a business side, I really do love um, OneNote and I like a lot of the Google Calendar hacks. Um, and for me, I think something like Microsoft OneNote is a bit of a game changer because it allows you to uh, create, in essence, virtual notebooks and to very clearly organize information so that it's always available at your fingertips, both personally and professionally. So, you know, I have virtual notebooks for um, new patient referrals. I have virtual notebooks for, you know, lecture referrals. I have virtual notebooks that are personal where it will be subcategorized by auto and the names of my kids and home things and insurance things and, uh, you know, my professional affiliations, et cetera. And the reason why I think OneNote is so great is There's nothing worse than when you go on, say, for example, and I pay my annual dues for the American Speech Language Hearing Association, and I have a receipt that they give me as a printed, you know, comes up on the screen. Here's your, you know, thank you for your payment. Here's your virtual receipt and we'll email you. And yes, you can keep those things in email, but I don't want to print a piece of paper of it because really the paper's not going to go anywhere. So what I love about OneNote is you print to OneNote and it literally, you tell it which notebook to put it in. So it's virtual printing to the file cabinet that it goes to. So I love that if I have someone new who calls and they're a new client, I can go right to my new patient referrals. I can take my notes. If they send me any documents, I can add those. And it's great because... I can't tell you how many times people will call me two, three years later and say, we connected and I can go right back to my notes and say, yes, we did. And at that time, this was what was going on. How are things with that? So um, I just think that for me, from an organizational perspective in terms of, quote, virtual paper management um, and information management, I think OneNote's my go-to.
0: One note, I gotta check it out. I and I can totally see that hack right there where I'm trying to print something and I'm like, okay, I gotta save it as a PDF, gotta find like a folder. Like it seems like it just cuts through that that um confusion. What is the biggest challenge you're facing right now?
1: Um time and editors. <laughs> uh time just because there's never enough hours in the day. Um, I definitely feel that. Um and Uh, Chris and I are, you know, co-authoring, we've got three books that are out there and the editing process is a bit of a a beast. Um, And so I think those are sort of my, my big challenges at the moment. Um, But I also think too, although I get excited by it, um, I think tech is always constantly changing. And I think that absolutely the greatest challenge that we're seeing is the number of kids that are, Um, either electronically addicted, although that's actually changed a little bit with the pandemic. I mean, I actually have some kids now that are so sick of being on the computer, they're finding a relief to get off by the end of the day. So that's not a terrible thing. Um, But I find that the level of distractibility for our students from the multitasking between tab tab to tab to tab to tab or going from device to device to device or the amount of time that they just lose mindlessly scrolling on their phones. Um, I, I, I think that is a tremendous challenge with the kids that we work with and it's starting at a younger and a younger age. And while I am a, uh, bit of a tech geek myself, um, I'm very interested in continuing to find ways to support students who are struggling with that. And so I think, uh, professionally as far as sort of next step strategies, I think that's a big one. It's a big challenge.
0: Sarah, it has been such a pleasure to speak with you today. I've just really enjoyed this and I just feel like I have my homework to do in terms of learning more about OneNote and also just, you know, thinking about ways to optimize my business and and offerings, um, through listening to, to everything you've shared. And then, but I'd love to know if people want to find out more about what you're doing, your upcoming offers, you know, I know you have the the course and also the three books, which is on the way, which is amazing. Can you tell us more about how people can find out more about your work?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, um, we're, we have a revamp, so check out our website because it's, uh, I think think our new one's live in like two weeks, which is exciting. Um, so our, our website's easy. It's E F like executive function practice.com. Uh, we've got, Uh, lots of information there, lots of tools and products. You know, we've developed um, academic planners and a lot of specific tools for developing executive function skills. Um, And then certainly lots of upcoming lectures. And um, I think, you know, a number of interviews and things always pop up on YouTube. It's a great way to kind of catch up and see what's new with that one too.
0: Since you got to the end, I know you got value from this episode. I need you to do one thing, Open the Apple Podcast app on your phone, and in the bottom right corner, click Search. Tap in Earn More Tutoring and scroll to the very bottom once you click on the Earn More Tutoring show to leave a rating and review. Our goal is to get 50 ratings and reviews, and we are almost there. Are you interested in helping your education business grow? Then visit earnmoretutoring.com coaching. New episodes will be posted on Sundays. This show is written by Sean McCormick. The show is produced by Casey Sticker and Sean McCormick. Music production is by Casey Sticker. Project management is done by Maya Pugach. To learn more and find great resources, go to earnmoretutoring.com.